and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Our scripture today comes from Job chapter 9, and we're going to read it in the message version. So how could I ever argue with him, construct a defense that would influence God? Even though I'm innocent, I could never prove it. I can only throw myself on the judge's mercy. If I called on God and he himself answered me, then and only then would I believe that he'd heard me. As it is, he knocks me from the pillar to post, beating me up black and blue for no good reason. He won't let me even catch my breath. Piles of bitterness upon bitterness. If it's a question of who's stronger, he wins hands down. If it's a question of justice, who will serve him the subpoena? Even though innocent, anything I say incriminates me. Blameless as I am, my defense just makes me sound worse. Believe me, I'm blameless. I don't understand what's going on. I hate my life. Since either way it ends up the same, I can only conclude that God destroys the good right along with the bad. When calamity hits and brings sudden death, he folds his arms aloof from the despair of the innocent. He lets the wicked take over running the world. He installs judges who can't tell right right from wrong. If he's not responsible, who is? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a hard one to say that on. Came back on a happy note. (laughs) (laughs) Are you guys ready to talk about this? Um, Hey, it's so nice to be back with you guys. Um, If I get tired at one point... Understand this, there's two things at play. I don't talk this much anymore at all. Um, So I will get tired. Number two, whenever I come back, I'm always filled initially with a flood of emotions that um, I don't have time to differentiate from. So I just feel it all and it comes into me. And then as I start talking, what I've noticed when I come back is I'm emotionally tired and a wreck by the end of it. So please excuse me. If it seems I get tired, it's always great um, coming back in this room because this room just has so much memories to me, but coming back and feeling the presence of God working among you and seeing the great job that um, the staff is doing, but the job that you guys are doing and building a community is um, a blessing to me. Um, As someone who was a pastor here, that was always what we hoped, that this would be a church of the church. And every time I come back, I see that. Um, So, hey, before we jump in today, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this room. And Father, and as we dive into um, the series that I'm glad that I get to be a part of, I pray, Father, that in this room, Father, that you would disrupt the places that need to be disrupted in us. God, I pray for the false images of you that we have that we can notice them. And Father, and in the midst of the disorientation of that, I pray that you can help us find a way forward. And Father, if we're in a disorientating moment in our faith, I pray that you would come and help us. 
And so, Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Uh, today, we're going to talk about um, what happens in every walk of faith at some point in time, if you're honest, and that is disillusionment. What happens when God doesn't turn out to be who you thought he was? Um, and yet, God gave us a gift, and that gift is the book of Job. We're going to talk about the book of Job today. Here's, here's the deal. I don't know who is an expert on the book of Job. I have some ideas about the book of Job that I think will be helpful for us, um, and I'm excited to jump into that today. But first, I want to start with a story. Um, whenever I was like five or seven years old, I woke up one morning um, and as you do, I woke up at like 4.30 a.m. before everyone else. Um, the night before, my parents um, brought home a big bucket of KFC fried chicken, some mashed potatoes, all the good stuff. And so, you know, there's leftovers in the fridge. So as, as a five, seven-year-old, well, that's interesting. <laughs> um, we, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Well, anyways, uh, KFC chicken and waking up early. Okay. Um, I wake up early, I, and I'm like, hey, we have leftover chicken. I grab me a chicken leg. I go to my dad's Lazy Boy. I sit down, I eat the chicken leg, and um, I watch some cartoons, and I fall asleep, as you do. Um, and I woke up at 7 a.m. to my mom just pushing me, like, Chad, wake up, wake up, wake up, Charles, get in here. And, like, my mom is hectic and freaking out, and so I'm blurry. I'm waking up, and my mom's like, like, hey, what happened to you? And my dad comes in, he's like, he has chicken pox. So I had chicken pox. If that was how I got chicken pox. And so the parents take me to the daughter, to the daughter, to the doctor, everything's cool and find out. But here's the deal, no one ever sat down to explain to me how you get chicken pox. <laughs> no one ever did. No one was ever that kind. And honestly, I had, no quest I had no reason to ask questions because let me tell you, I knew how I got it. <laughs> I woke up early and ate cold KFC chicken. I would love to tell you I didn't tell that to the other people. I did. I told it to everyone. And for some odd reason, no one ever questioned me on it. No one was ever like, well, he's wrong about that. Um, um, but... Um, as a kid, I just rationally thought that's how you got it. Here's the deal. I don't know when I stopped believing that. Um, um, I do know it was way later than what it probably should have been. Um, um, and my wife loves this story because as a physician, she's very nice. She's always like, well, you were a very rational kid. And I was like, well, you, you may call it that or just very ignorant. Um, um, but um, that's a funny illusion, right, um, that when it's revealed, it's not, um, it doesn't wreck my emotions. It does make me feel stupid. Like, I always think in my head, if all my friends in Missouri who knew me are now together at this age, and they're like, do you remember that kid who thought he got chicken pox from cold KFC chicken leg? That guy was dumb. Um, so, yeah, I still fear that that's going on someplace out there in the world. Let me tell you, that's not how you get in. That's not how a virus works. So, um, so that's a silly illusion that you believe, and then when it's uh, sown to you, it doesn't affect you much. But what about when it comes to your faith? How do you react when you what you believe that? How do you react when you believe something about God or have expectations around how He works in the world and He doesn't seemingly come through? What do you do when God is inexplicably silent and inactive in critical moments in your life? 
um, for, some, for some of you in here, you raise your kids in the way that they should go so they do not depart from the way of the Lord. And then they depart, and you feel the pain. And you say, God, I did what you told me to do. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. How do you respond to a doctrine or belief you have held for years in your faith? And it turns out that what you believe or the religious leaders have said about God just isn't true. These are the illusions in our life that hurt us. These are the illusions in our life that are hard because faith isn't meaningless. It is a big part of our lives. These questions and moments are not, and now, these questions and moments are not abnormal to faith. Let me say that. If you're in here today and you're like, that's me, I feel like I'm the only one, well, don't worry. These are not abnormal to a life of faith. Mother Teresa, who is considered by all, uh, whether you're a Catholic Christian or a Protestant Christian, uh, she's one of the most well-known saints in our modern era. She's known for loving the poor, sick, and the people who are viewed as cursed by God on the streets of Calcutta, um, just giving our life. If you've ever seen an interview with Mother Teresa, you would be surprised by her countenance as you would think of her as this lovely little old woman that loves everyone. But honestly, people did not like interviewing her because, number one, she was short and she was blunt. And that's because Mother Teresa was real. Um, Here's a quote I have from her. Um, She says, I am told God lives in me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. I want God with all my power and my soul. And yet between us there is terrible separation. Heaven from every side is closed. I feel just that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, and God not really existing. And this is a sneak peek as someone we consider one of the greatest examples of faith in our modern day. And she did it in the midst of disillusionment and doubts. And when we look at the text that Lindsay read, Job is no different. He looks at the present suffering and says that he has been upright and blameless and does not deserve what is happening to him. Uh, uh, In this story, he lost his kids and he lost some of his health. And he says these words, words, as it is, he knocks me about from pillar to post, beating me up black and blue for no good reason. He won't even let me catch my breath. Piles of bitterness upon bitterness. I don't understand what's going on. I hate my life. Since either way it ends up the same, I can only conclude that God destroys the good right along with the bad. When calamity hits and brings sudden death, he folds his arms aloof from the despair of the innocent. He lets the wicked take over running the world. He installs judges who can't tell right from wrong. And then he makes a charge at God. If he's not responsible, then who is? If he's not responsible, then who is? Have you ever asked that question? I have. And before we go any further, I want to say a few things about the book of Job. Um, I don't have time to break it all down, guys. This is like 49 chapters or so. Um, Let me say that. If I did that, we'd be here all day. You don't want that? I don't want that. Uh, The Kansas City Chiefs are playing right now. That's my team. I want to get out here as quick as possible. Um, Just kidding. Um, Well, maybe a little bit. But um, 
Um, but we need to understand the context of those statements of Job so we can relate to it and understand what God is trying to convey to us in this book. So first off, I'm going to give some facts. I'm not going to argue them. If you want to argue them with me, we can talk about it later. I'd be glad to. I'll be here in two weeks for three days. We can sit down and have some fun. Um, but first off, Job is not a literal story in the Bible. Job may be an actual person, but this is not a literal story or event. Instead, this is an author that is writing the story to challenge a popular belief amongst Israel and the religious elite of their day, which was a doctrine called just retribution. And this doctrine that they called just retribution meant that if you do good in the world, then you're going to prosper. If you do bad in the world, then you get what's coming to you. You get destruction and sickness and despair. Since God, and, and, this, and this is what they believe, since God is just and good, um, he will reward good deeds with health, wealth, and abundance, and he will reward bad behavior with e- evil, sickness, and despair. Yet the author of Job has realized that this isn't true. He's looked at life honestly. He's heard this doctrine or has experienced some kind of injustice himself, and he said, no, this isn't true. He says people do suffer. Wicked people prosper. Some even mock God by their high-handed offenses and couldn't care less attitudes. Yet God, God, yet God does not strike them down. Many of these live to a ripe old age while saintly people often die tragically before their time. He's considering and contemplating this doctrine with the reality of life. So he decides to write a story that puts the doctrine or just retribution, this idea about God and the world on trial while he works through his disillusionment about it and God. So what's on trial? Not an actual person, Job, an idea and a doctrine and God. So, so, and so when we see the court scene in chapter 1 and 2 of Satan saying that Job only serves God because of, or the Satan says, God, Job only serves you because of the blessings that you give him. He is referring to just retribution. He's saying, if you take these things away, he won't bless you anymore. And then God in the story allows Satan to afflict Job to a point to see if Job will curse God. And curse God doesn't mean like say a cuss word at God. Um, It means walk away from the faith. Stop believing. And real quick, I want to say this. If this is the context, then we have to understand this image of God that we have as divine tester of our faith. As if God is bored and just wants to test us all the time. And the book of Job is one of the main reasons in which we get this picture. And then we put it in all the other theology and thoughts we have about God. Um, How many of you have ever read the sack or seen the movie? Um, I have. Uh, God is, the Father is depicted as a black woman who loves to cook. And the Holy Spirit is depicted as an oriental woman. And Jesus, and rightly so, thank you, Brian McLaren, is pictured as a Middle Eastern man. Um, Now, does Brian McLaren want you to believe that God the Father is actually a black woman who likes to cook? No. But he does it to represent something, to make his case about God. And so when we look at this, this isn't a little event for us to take something about God. It's just how the author is setting up the story to explain what he's putting on trial. Let me say this. God doesn't play a game with your life or test you. Life does. Life comes with its own tests. And God is there to work through it 
with us. So now in this setting, we see Job's and the author's disillusionment. He's accusing God of being unjust. The author has already made clear that God himself pronounced Job in chapter 1. God says he is blameless and upright, who reveres God and turns away from evil. The very definition of what it means to be wise and righteous. Yet, Job still suffers. Job's questioning God's justice and goodness became the logically unavoidable given in a belief system that holds that everything that happens, good and bad, is God's will. That's the logical conclusion. The author is disillusioned of what he used to believe about God, and even more so, he is unsure if the God he believes in is just or good. As many of you know, when me, when me and my wife were here in Tennessee, we had three miscarriages that came in like a year and a half, and in that year and a half, my brother died. Um, and that time, for me and my wife, it wasn't a disillusionment moment for me. Um, it was more so for my wife. But in the midst of that, you would get well-meaning people come up and say, well, it's just not God's timing. And you're like, what? Well, thanks. <laughs> or, hey, I guess it just wasn't God's will. And I was always nice in front of, in front of them, like, hey, thank you. But when I go back and I'm alone with my wife, I would be mad. And what, and, and what I'd always want to say to them is, so the logical conclusion of what you're saying is what happened was God's will. It was God's will for a baby to die. It wasn't God's will for us to have a baby. And now I never believed that, but these things when they're said to you or these ideas of God when you go through pain, they form your faith. And this is why disillusionment is always needed in our faith because we need to come to a point that we question these things. Um, And so, um, surprise, my wife right now is 17 weeks pregnant with a healthy baby girl. Um, Yeah. But uh, the first 13 weeks were exhausting. Um, My wife, being, being a PA, knows the body. She knows what can go wrong. And so, uh, my wife is in Miami with Lisa Bell, li- living it up at, at a baseball game at about six weeks. And she texts me and she's like, hey, this happened, and I'm having this pain. And we're like, oh, no, it's happening again. And in my mind, I thought, you, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fast, I'm going to stop eating, I'm going to stop whatever I'm doing this weekend, and I'm going to fast and pray. And so I gird up my loins. I'm ready to do business with God. I get in there, and five minutes in, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, what am I doing? And I came to this moment of, God, I believe I, me and Christy want this baby more than you want us to have this baby. I believe that. That's how I'm acting. God, I believe the good I want for my life, you don't want. So I think, so I feel like I have to come and twist your arm to get you to do something. And in that moment, disillusionment flooded over me. I realized how pain and loss has formed my soul. And I haven't dealt with it. And so as that's happening, disillusionment comes. Disorientation comes to my faith. And it's like, God, I, I mentally don't believe those things, but how I'm acting is true. And so in this moment, uh, Jesus, I don't know how to pray anymore. I don't know what to say to you. So I just sat in the silence of the disillusionment and disorientation with him. 
I realized I didn't know God like I thought I did. And I admitted that to him. And honestly, still today, I'm like, God, in prayer, I sometimes still don't know how to relate to you or what to say. It was a moment of disillusionment and disorientation in my life in relationship with God. How do we relate to God when these moments happen? Job accused, complained, and came to the conclusion that God was not just. Yet he never walked away, and he never cursed God. So the question is, what did God think about Job's actions? Uh, God kind of finally comes on the scene after a long narrative of Job complaining at God, Job's friends being kind for a moment, and then saying, hey, Job, if you repent, God will restore everything back to you. This idea of just retribution. If you repent, if you repent, God will restore you. He will give everything back to you. You just have to realize you've sinned. And also, the way you're talking about God is sinful. You should honor God. God is holy. He is full of glory. You should not talk this way to God. And then Job doesn't listen. He goes crazy. Um, And let me say this. If you want to go read the idea of just retribution, and if you may believe that, go to the book of Job and read what they have to say. Um, One of the fathers of Reformed faith, John Calvin, loved the speeches of Elihu. That is interesting because uh, Elihu, by most theologians, is literally considered as the Satan figure coming to speak to Job. And so John Calvin, who loves it, like, man, this guy is saying a ton of truth about God. Um, Well, John, that may not have been true. John Calvin, big fan of just retribution. But when God comes on the scene, he does not address Job's questions. I don't know about you. Oddly feels familiar. Why he has suffered, what wrong has he done, what is the evidence against him? God offers no explanation whatsoever. He does not even attempt to defend his character and justice that Job brought into question. Instead, God responds to a series of nature poems, like you would. (laughs) Um, This is a really important note, though, to read these poems. Because, once again, this is the author of Job now suggesting how God works in the world. Now, the author of Job isn't sure about this. But he's like, this is how I think it works. And so God shows up on the scene. He affirms his sovereignty in the context of creation. But listen to this. He indeed has established its laws and functions. Yet, he does not meticulously control nature. He has instead bestowed the creation with the freedom of movement and operation, a capacity to develop and change, a capacity to get better, a capacity to get worse. And after these pieces, Job responds, and we have the scripture for this, uh, Job 42, 1 through 8. I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask you questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand. From my own eyes and ears, I'm sorry, forgive me, I never do it again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of your hearsay, crumbs of rumor. 
How do you think God responded to that? Well, this is how God responds. In verses 7 and 8, after God had finished addressing Job, he turned to Eliphaz and said, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me. Now, he's talking about this about Job's friends, the idea of just retribution. You sin, so if you repent, you'll get everything back. Hey, you're, you're, you're basically being dishonoring God with the way you're talking about God. Job, repent. And then God goes on to say, um, not the way my friend Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my friend Job. Sacrifice a burnt offering on your own behalf. My friend Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking nonsense about me and for not being honest with me as he has. God doesn't rebuke Job for his doubt, for questioning his justice, for questioning is he good or not for his complaining, for his lament. Instead, he approves of Job and his honesty, calling out the dishonesty of those that believe in the worldview of just retribution. What do we do with our disillusionments and doubts about God? The book of Job, a poetic story, yet divinely inspired by God, suggests that our doubts and disillusionments are not a denial of faith and belief in God but they are a sign of strength of our faith and trust in God when we can be honest with God about them. Do you, do, do you, are you with me on that? God doesn't want us to cover up our doubts and disillusionment with religious rhetoric or even scripture. He doesn't want us to say, no, no, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to trust God, I'm going to keep on going, and ignore the pain that we're having. To not talk to God about these things, to not to talk to God about our our, our, our problems with him, our view of him, how we think sometimes he's not good, shows that we don't trust God. It shows that we don't think God has the emotional capacity to hear our doubts, that God doesn't have it. But we do. God doesn't, though. We suggest that we believe he is emotionally incapable. However, the book of Job shows us a God that understands our emotional processes and pains. So much so, he allowed a writer who was in full disillusionment of what he was to write sacred scripture. Barbara Brown Taylor has this to say about this. She says, disillusionment is literally the loss of an illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it is almost always a painful thing, it is never a bad thing. To lose the lies we have mistaken for truth. Disillusioned, disillusioned, we find out what is not true and we are set free to ask what is. If we dare to turn away from the God who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. And I don't think I have to talk about Jesus uh, at length today. I think Lindsay has. Thomas came with his doubts to God and God didn't uh, reprimand him, but God's like, oh, okay, here, Thomas. You see in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he proclaims who Jesus is. It's even a theory that um, John the Baptist, that Jesus spent time under John the Baptist's ministry when he was going about. And then John the Baptist is in jail and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, um, are you the one who was supposed to come? Because um, I'm in jail um, and you haven't got me out yet. 
because he believed the scripture that Jesus to sell the captives free, John the Baptist, known for his great faith, is also disillusioned. Then Jesus uh, sends back, he quotes the scripture in which he has came the captives free, but not in the way you thought, John. And which John gets that, and John's probably like, well, I'm about to die. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but I want to say this. Um, in your disillusionment, we often think that I want to get back to that zeal I once had. Have any of you been there? God, I used to have this zeal for you. I want to get back to that. Um, and that's an illusion. Because you're in a new place. Right? God has shown you things. He's revealed yourself. There's questions and he's walking with you through it. God does not expect you to go back to the illusion. Zeal looks different the closer you get the job. The closer you get the job. A job, gosh. The closer you get to God. It looks different. It's not this youthful zeal. It's more this quiet patience. So if you're bothering with that today, know this, God, God's not expecting you to go back to that idea of faith that you thought you were supposed to be. And so what, we, what do we do with our doubts and disillusionment? We be honest with God, knowing that he plans to find solidarity with us in it. And while he may not answer most of your questions, I know from experience, um, he'll be there. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. All those things are true. But it doesn't mean these times aren't going to come. And so as the band comes today, um, I'm going to give you uh, what is my prayer practice. It's been my prayer practice for probably about four years. I read a book about, uh, by a Jesuit named William Berry, which the whole book is called Praying the Truth. And oftentimes with God, we're not honest with God. I normally find myself in prayer starting out like, oh, God. And then I'm like, oh, I'm using religious language. Jesus, help me to be honest in my prayer. I don't know how to right now. And so as you listen to the sermon, and you may be like, hey, man, I'm not in a moment of disillusionment. Well, no, it's coming. If you're honest with yourself, it's coming. It always comes. And that's not bad. It's a sign of growth. And so as a community, we have to learn how to pray the truth. We have to learn how to be honest with God, the thoughts we have about him and the thoughts that we have about the world. And when we do, I oftentimes don't find an answer, but I oftentimes feel God's solidarity in my questions. And that honestly is a lot more important than an answer to me at this stage in my life. And so um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you guys a minute. And you just name the thing that you're doubting. I'm going to leave space for the Spirit to speak to you and just to be honest with God in those places. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll give everyone a moment just to sit. God, I thank you for this room. God, I thank you that you gave us a book which is wild and Jesus, a book that even the people who put the Bible together wanted to throw out. And God, I thank you that, uh, that you gave us a book to find solidarity with us in our doubts and our disillusionment about faith in you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray right now that where there's uneasiness, that you would bring peace in this room. And Holy Spirit, right now, I pray that you would bring freedom. And it's in your name I pray.
Amen.